When do you think it is that somebody crosses that invisible threshold and leaves childhood to enter into adulthood? Legally, we become adults when we turn 18. But like most of you, I've met some 18-year-olds and think that that law may be just a little bit suspect. Uh, I think we need to be more like the Hamar tribe in Ethiopia that I read about. Here's what they do. If you are a young man in this tribe in Ethiopia, as you get close to marrying age, what they do is they will bring you out to the middle of the village, they will strip you naked, and then all of the men of the village will whip you publicly. Because that gets you in the frame of mind for what it's like to be married, see? And then... (laughs) And then this young man... This young man, they will take they will take four bulls and they will set them side to side each other, and this young man has to run across the back of the four bulls. And once he's done that, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he is a man who is now ready to be married. For us in our culture, it's not quite that clear, is it? If you're here today and the phrase annual percentage rate means anything to you, then you're probably an adult. If today uh, a nap Sounds less like a punishment and more like a reward, and you're probably an adult. Uh, hey, man, yes. Not now, please. I knew, for me personally, I knew that I had finally become an actual adult one Saturday night when I called the police on my neighbors because their music was too loud. And not only had I turned into an adult, I had turned into a lame adult. But what can you do? As we have studied the book of Galatians together uh, the past few Sunday mornings, one of the themes that runs just kind of underneath the surface of this book is the idea that there's a certain way to think about God that is very childish. It's very immature. And that's what Paul is getting at in these verses. As he, he, he writes to this church to say to them, if you think that God's love for you and his approval of you, if you think that depends upon your performance or your good deeds, and you think God's love is always kind of changing based upon how good you've been or how bad you may have been, Paul says that is a very immature and childish way to think about God. But he's going to go even further as we look in Galatians chapter 4 this morning. And he's going to say that not only is that an immature way to think about God, but he says it's actually a form of slavery. And what he's going to teach us in this passage of Scripture that I hope you take with you as we leave this place today is that God is not interested in making us slaves whose value changes based upon how hard we work. But God is working to make us sons and daughters who are loved and accepted no matter what. Paul's going to show us that in Galatians 4. So take your Bible and turn there with me, if you would, Galatians chapter 4. And then we are going to stand together as we read this passage of Scripture. And we're going to honor God's Word and hear what He says to us. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. Galatians chapter 4. And we begin in verse number 1. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, 
When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You may be seated, and I believe the Lord's going to help us this morning. Now, as we've seen over the past few weeks studying the book of Galatians, this book is a book that is a very, very doctrinal book. It's a book that's written by the Apostle Paul about a very specific doctrinal issue at work in the church of Galatia. It's a book written to address a doctrinal problem. The problem is that there's a group of teachers known as Judaizers who are coming in, telling the Gentile believers in the church of Galatia, look... It's great that you've trusted in Jesus. But if you want to be a really real Christian, then you need to become a Jew first. At least you need to be circumcised like the Jews. And you need to keep some of the Jewish laws and the Jewish rituals before you can really be a true Christian. So what the church in Galatia was hearing, what these people were hearing was this. Jesus is great. Jesus is important. Jesus is essential. And every religion in the world that I know of is going to tell you those things. They're all going to say, Jesus is great. Jesus is important. They may even tell you that Jesus is necessary. But the Apostle Paul jumps in to highlight the one key difference of true Christianity as he says, Jesus is not only good, he's not only necessary, he's not only important, Jesus is enough. And that's what he's saying in this book of Scripture. But this book that is so much about doctrine, it's also a book that is really concerned about relationships. 
Because relationships are starting to be fractured over this false doctrine in Galatia. There are people here in Galatia who are seeing their relationships with their church friends start to be fractured. As some people in the church have been circumcised. And now they feel a little bit superior to people who haven't been circumcised. They feel like they belong in the in crowd. They are a little bit higher class than, you know, these peasants out here who haven't been circumcised. And then those who haven't been circumcised yet, maybe they feel like... You know, where where do we fit? Are we not as important? Maybe we don't have the same spiritual capabilities that these other people have. Then their relationship with the Apostle Paul, who had founded the church in Galatia, and who had presented the message of Jesus for the first time, that relationship, too, was starting to fall apart. But most importantly, the relationship that's at stake is their very relationship with God Himself. As they are starting to think about knowing God and experiencing God in very different terms than the Apostle Paul does, And really, that's the heart of the book, isn't it? People are wondering, how do we really know God? How do we really experience Him? How can we really rightfully enjoy His blessings? How can I know Him? And these false teachers were coming along and saying, you can only know God if you impress Him enough. And Paul is going to come along in this chapter of Scripture and say, that is slavery. He says, it is slavery for you to believe that you have to work to earn the favor and the approval of God. And God is not interested in making us slaves. He is interested in making us sons. And he says in these verses that God is so committed to making us sons and daughters of Him that He would send His Son to be born under the law, to carry that law, and to welcome us into His family. So what Paul does here in Galatians chapter 4 is he draws from his own personal ministry experiences in Galatia. He draws from somewhat unfamiliar Old Testament stories and to us foreign cultural practices to paint this picture of what it means to be sons instead of slaves by giving us three images of different kinds of relationships that prove to us God is not interested in making us slaves, but God is determined to adopt us as sons. Let me give you this first image in this passage of Scripture. It's in verses 1 through verse number 7. It's the image of fatherhood. Verses 1 through 7, the image of fatherhood. Now, you can tell, uh, as Paul begins in Galatians 4, he begins with the word, I mean. Uh, And so he's really just continuing what he talked about in Galatians chapter number 3, where he's talked about the nature and the purpose of the Old Testament law. And he's shown us in chapter 3, if you were here a couple weeks ago, that the nature and the purpose of the Old Testament law was to show us our sin. It wasn't that we would keep those rules and save ourselves by those rules, but it is that we would look at those rules and realize we can't do this on our own. And so we would look outside of ourselves to Jesus who himself would save us. That was the purpose of the Old Testament law. Paul says it's like a tutor. It's a tutor who nitpicks every single minor mistake that you make to show you that you really do need help. That you really are not as capable and as intelligent and as able as you would like to believe. So Paul continues that idea in verse number 1 to talk about what would have been a really common domestic arrangement in Paul's day. At least in the wealthy homes of Paul's day. And that is a man who had some sons and had some money. May for a season, while his children were still growing up, he may put those children under the tutelage of his slaves. So that those slaves would educate them, would teach them, would help them to learn their place in society until they grew into maturity. That's what Paul is saying. That even though he is a child, his life seems like slavery. Because somebody else is telling him what to wear. Somebody else is telling him how to act. Somebody else is telling him what to do. Technically, legally, he is the heir of everything the father has. 
And the slave who is teaching him, technically, legally, that slave is somebody who is the property of another person. But Paul says day to day, it seems like the son is the one who is the slave. And I think it's a good reminder for parents here that it's okay sometimes for you to treat your kids like slaves. Don't let them make any decisions. Don't give them choices. Make them do what you want them to do. That's what parenthood's all about. That's why most of us had kids, because we're tired of doing our own chores, right? But what happens is, what happens in childhood for all of us, when we were children and for our children, what happens is eventually those, those restrictions start to lift, right? As we become more mature. You don't treat a 17-year-old like a 7-year-old. You don't treat a 7-year-old like a 17-year-old either. Because hopefully at 17, he's going to need less rules and he's going to be able to take on more responsibilities. And Paul is saying that's how it works with our relationship to the Old Testament law and our relationship to the gospel. He's saying that the gospel represents maturity. It represents knowing God apart from those rules. And it represents a new way of connecting with God. He says the law, the Old Testament, it micromanaged every single element of our lives. The way a nitpicking slave would have. The way a parent who's making sure his little child does not misbehave. Paul says that's the work of the law. And he wants us to see that looks like slavery. That if we really believe that we are earning our place with God, if we really believe that His love for us or the blessings He gives to us, if we really believe those things depend upon how good we are in and of ourselves, Paul says that's slavery. It's work. It is labor. It is doing as you're told or else. Did anybody else grow up in that kind of home? Do as you're told or else. Paul says that is law. There's a lot of law in my home growing up. But what Paul's writing about here in the book of Galatia, in the Galatians, he's writing to a church full of people who have been liberated in Jesus, but who, through some confusion in their mind and their heart, they're going back into that kind of slavery. And so they're going backward in their walk with God. They're stuck in kind of this perpetual, prolonged adolescence where they never grow out of their immaturity. They never grow into the proper understanding that God does not want them to be slaves. He wants them to be sons. And it could be that some of you are here in that same condition this morning, that you believe in Jesus. You know Jesus is the only way you're going to get out of your sins and into heaven. But practically day to day, you really do believe and you really do feel that God's love for you is always changing based upon how good you are. Based upon how many chapters you've read in your Bible, based upon how many times you've come to church this week, based upon how good you are in getting your kids to Sunday school, based upon how Christian your vocabulary may seem. All of those things determine how God feels about you in a given moment. Paul said that's slavery. It's slavery. And he says in verse number four, the gospel is not about making slaves. It's about making us sons as God gives us his sons. See what he says in verse four? When the fullness of time had come, when we are at the place, when God our Father determined that we were, it was time to make us full sons, he sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. That is the gospel message. That God sent His Son, born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary, without the aid of a human father, coming both as God and man, born under the Old Testament law, to keep the law for us, and to be judged as if He had broken the law, so that lawbreakers like us could be treated as if we had kept the law. 
That is the Old Testament. That is the gospel in Galatians 4 4. That God, our lawgiver, that all of us have sinned against, was so committed to adopting us into his family that he took our legal problems on his shoulders, made our problem his responsibility, and said, I will send my son to save you from your guilt. Paul said, This is the gospel message that Jesus kept the law for us. Which means today, the good news of the gospel is that we are not under the slavery. We are not under the slavery of trying to impress God. We are not under the slavery of thinking that our value changes in His eyes depending on how good we are. But we are now welcomed as sons because of a son He offered for us and because of the son He puts inside of us, Paul says. We are now as welcome to God as Jesus Himself is. So understand what Paul's getting at in this passage of Scripture. Please understand it. That if you believe... That your value in the sight of God changes day to day depending on how good you are or how bad you are. Depending on how capable you are or how spiritual you might feel. That is slavery. A slave's value can change in the eyes of his master day to day based upon the skills that he has. As a slave gets older, maybe he's not as able to work the way he used to and all of a sudden he's not worth as much as he was before. Or he may learn a new skill. He may learn how to do something out in the field or repair a piece of machinery or whatever. And all of a sudden that slave is more valuable in the eyes of his master. His value can go up or down. And ultimately that master can walk away from that relationship and he can sell that slave to somebody else. And that is exactly how some of you feel about your relationship with God. You feel like your value is always in flux based upon how good or how bad you are. Paul said that is not how we know God. We do not know Him as slaves whose relationship is constantly changing. We know Him as sons whose value never changes. Who are as loved today as Christ Himself is loved. Who are as welcomed as Jesus is welcomed. Who are as known and wanted as Jesus. Why? Because we are adopted now, there were legal mechanisms in place in Paul's day for a man to adopt his slaves. For us, we're a little bit more familiar with somebody going to an orphanage or adopting through foster care. Uh, but several years ago, uh, Amy and I had some friends in the last church that I pastored named Sam and Michelle. And they were fostering a little boy by the name of Jaden. And Jaden was, he's about four at the time, and like most kids, Jaden was, you know, just a tornado that was unleashed in the world. But he was, he was a great kid. He was an awesome kid. And like a lot of kids in the foster system, <clears throat> Jaden's mother was struggled with drug abuse, and Jaden's father was just his biological father was nowhere in the picture. And after a couple of years of Jaden being in Sam and Michelle's home, I believe it was last December, finally, finally, Jaden became theirs. Legally, he is their son. And however all that works, I don't know legally how necessarily all that works, but when the judge made that declaration and the paperwork was signed and finalized, when Jaden became Sam and Michelle's son, in that moment, that boy received a new name. He received a new home. He received, even though he probably didn't realize it, he received a totally new future. And he received a completely new life. When Paul talks about adoption, that's how he wants you to think about your relationship with God. That Jesus walked into the slave market where you were shackled in the chains of your sin and your guilt. And when you had nothing to offer Him but a broken past and a messed up life, Jesus said, I want that one. And I will give him or her a new name. And I will give them a new future. And I will give them a new start. And I will give them a new life. Now, there's more to the story of Sam, Michelle, and Jaden. Before that adoption was finalized, uh, Jaden's biological mother 
would do just enough in the court system to be able to regain custody of Jaden. And so he would leave Sam and Michelle's where he was stable and loved and wanted and taken care of, and he would go back to her home. And sometimes for a month or maybe six weeks, he would be in that chaos where his whole world was turned upside down. And every time he would go back to Sam and Michelle's, which inevitably he would, every time he would go back to Sam and Michelle's, poor little guy, his behavior always went back. Because his, he was now experiencing insecurity where there had been stability. He was experiencing fear where there had been confidence. He had gone from being loved and welcomed and wanted to being neglected. And it always would set him back terribly because his world was just turned upside down. And that's exactly how the Galatians were living in their relationship with God. That's exactly what some of you are doing too. You keep going backward in your relationship, continually believing the lie that God is treating you like a slave. God's not treating us like slaves. He's welcoming us like sons who cannot be sold, who cannot be disowned, who cannot be forgotten, who cannot be abandoned, whose value does not go up or down, but who are always loved, always welcomed at their best, at their worst. They are still sons. And Paul says what's more in verses 6 and 7, that not only does God give His Son for us, but God puts His Son in us. So that now, the same Jesus who was born in this world for us has been born into our hearts so that we cry out in Him and with Him and like Him, Abba, Father. Here's how Jesus describes our relationship with Him in John 17. He says, John 17, 23, to the Lord, He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's the relationship that we have with God. That He sent His Son for us. He has put His Son inside of us. Jesus has wiped away our past. He has, he has written His righteousness across our lives. We are as welcomed before God today as Jesus is, and that will never change because we've been adopted. That's the image of fatherhood that Paul paints in this picture, in this text. The second image that he's going to paint here is the image of motherhood in verses 8 through 20. Now, after giving the Galatians this incredible reminder of the beauty of the gospel, Paul is going to kind of vent his own frustration that they have walked away from it. So much so that he compares himself in verse 19 to a woman in labor. He says, I feel like I'm in the agony of childbirth until you reach maturity in Christ. But Paul wants to know, he wants to know ultimately, why did you turn back? He said, what, what happened to you? Verse number Nine, the middle of the verse, how can you turn back? How can you walk away from the gospel that I preached? Now, before these people encountered Paul and Jesus, they had been pagan Gentiles. They had worshipped Zeus and Hades and Prometheus or whoever and all the rest. They had been enslaved to false gods. Paul says, now you know the true God, verses 8 and 9. But then I love this little spin he puts on this in verse number 9. And this is critical to understanding your relationship with God today. He said it's not so much that you know God as it is that God knows you. I think it's, again, really an adoption metaphor. That God does not love us because we have something to offer. God does not choose us because we are so great. God chooses us because He has everything to offer and because He is great. He saves us from His own heart. Paul says, think about that grace before you walk away. I'll explain this the way J.I. Packer said it in his excellent book, Knowing God. He said, we do not make friends with God. God made friends with us. And that's right. 
God is the one who takes the initiative, always. God is the one who makes the first move, always. God is the one who loves first, always. He is always the one who pursues and claims and reconciles and rescues His people. So Paul said, if you feel insecure today in your relationship with God, why don't you lay all of your effort to know God down alongside of His efforts to know you? And see who's really done the most to know who. See who's really cost who. Who's really paid the price to know who in this relationship. So Paul says, knowing that, why have you walked away? Why have you walked away? The Galatians had walked away. Paul's worried about them. And so he says to them in these verses, in verse number 9, he says, you're going to turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. It's interesting here that Paul talks to these Gentiles whose past was pagan idol worship, who are now leaving Jesus for Orthodox Judaism, but he says you're going back to what you used to have. But really, that's not technically true. They're, they're leaving Jesus for a totally new religion altogether. And yet Paul sees religion without Jesus, whether it's Judaism or whether it's pagan idolatry, he said it's all the same. He even makes the point, he said, look, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He said, you've still got your religious calendar in place. You've still got your sacrifices. You've still got your feasts. He said, you're still being religious people. What he's getting at here is this important thought that some of you need to absorb in your hearts today. That legalism, the belief that we earn God's favor by our work, that really is just a pagan way of thinking about the right God. It's believing that God is powerful, but He is not personal. It's believing that God is there, but He really doesn't care. He really doesn't love us. He really doesn't want us until we make ourselves presentable to Him. And that's what they believed when they were pagans, and it's what they were believing now. So the principle is the same. And the principles are always the same. Understand me today. Whether we consider ourselves religious, whether we consider ourselves pagans, Jews, Christians, Baptists, or unaffiliated, or all of the above. The fact is today that there are only two ways to live in this world. And that is you can live with Jesus or you can live without Him. And if you're living without Him, then it's all the same. It's all grabbing life by the horns and doing it all under your own power. Whether you use terms like salvation and heaven, karma, or self-fulfillment, it's all about doing it yourself. And this is the message that many of us have believed our whole lives, that somehow the burden is on our shoulders to produce the life that we deserve and the life that we are after. Religious people do it. Irreligious people do it. All kinds of people do it. I remember when we were in Guatemala in the spring, we were rocking and rolling down the road one day. And I happened to look up, and there's a huge billboard. And I think it was in English. But I know the billboard was for Corona Beer. That's Cerveza for our Spanish-speaking audience. Corona Beer. And it had, it was a picture of a beach. And it had these two Latin supermodels on the beach. And here was a tagline for Corona Beer. It said, this is living. And the advertisement says, you buy Corona Beer, and you go hang out with Latin supermodels on the beach. Now look, I've been at Walmart and seen people buy Corona Beer. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they're not going to the beach to hang out with supermodels. They look like they're going to the bowling alley to eat hot wings is what they look like. But that's what we're told, Right? That's what we're told. You do this. You drink enough. You party enough. You make enough. You try hard enough. Or you be good enough. You be successful enough. Whatever. Then, like Corona says, this is 
living. That's what the Galatians were believing. Take control of your life and live. Paul said that's not life. It's slavery. And he's worried about the Galatians. He says you are going back into this slavery. And he, that breaks his heart because he loved this church. And you see his love for the church beginning in verse number 12 as he uh, remembers his own experiences with the church. It's likely that the Apostle Paul ended up in Galatia the first time uh, because of a health problem. He says in verse number 13, he says, I was there because of a body, bodily ailment. Paul was probably on his way somewhere else. He happened to get sick in Galatia. And while he was there, he preached the gospel. And when do you know it? God started a church through a sick preacher. And here... Paul expresses his worry, and as he does, he, he remembers the better days. He says, my condition was a trial to you, but he said, you didn't reject me or despise me. He said, you welcomed me as if I was an angel. You welcomed me as if I was Jesus himself. Then he says in verse number 15, he says, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, we don't know why that would have been a thing. Some people think that the Apostle Paul had maybe been stoned and left for dead. That's why he was in Galatia. His eyes were all swollen up. Some people think that the Apostle Paul had kind of a chronic vision problem and didn't see well, which is probably true. And Paul is saying that when we first met, you loved me and respected me so much, you would have given me your very eyeballs out of your head. That's a weird pastor appreciation they give, didn't it? But that's what Paul says. But now he says in verse number 16, he says... You love me like that, but haven't become your enemy because I tell you the truth. It's an amazing question, isn't it? Because I'm just proclaiming the truth, and now you hate me for it. But then, after reminding them of his love for them and his experiences with them, he reminds them of the motives, or he exposes the motives of the false teachers. They make much of you, he says, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Paul says this. He says, these false teachers are making a big deal about you, but they're doing it in this backward, convoluted way. And here's what Paul's getting at. He's saying that these false teachers were coming into Galatia, and he says they're shutting you out. That's abusive language. He's saying they're excluding you. They're pushing you away. They are saying that because you're Gentiles and because you're not circumcised and because you eat pork and because you don't do the things the way that they do as Jews, that you are unclean. You're not welcome to eat with them. You're not welcome to fellowship with them. They're pushing you away. And what's happening, Paul said, is this. He said, as they do that, you are looking at these false teachers and thinking, man, look how spiritual they are. Look how much they love God. Look how impressive and important and righteous they must be. I wish we could be like them. Maybe one day we'll get to where they are. And so Paul says they are just manipulating you so that you will cheer them on. They're using you as their own personal little fan club. Everybody likes being cheered for, right? Paul says it's good to be made much of for a good purpose. It's good to be cheered on. Everybody likes to be cheered on. When I was a kid... Elementary school, I played football for the Marion, Marion, North Carolina, Marion Elementary School Bombers. I'm going to tell you all, they named that team right. I think we won two games in about five years. But I can still remember when I was seven or eight, just a little bitty guy, I can still remember the cheerleaders for the Marion Bombers, bless their hearts, doing their cheer for one of our running backs, Derek, Derek, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. I'm going to tell y'all Derek couldn't do it, but <laughs> none of the rest of us could either. 
But I can still remember hearing that thinking, I want to hear them say, Jesse, Jesse, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. But apparently the cheerleading coach didn't want to fill me with any false hope about my athletic ability, so that never happened. But even then, I wanted somebody to be my cheerleader. Paul said those false teachers, they want somebody to be their cheerleader. And he said to the Galatians, he said, you want to be accepted by these people you think are so spiritual. You want that so bad that you want them to be your cheerleaders. Paul's saying that the whole system of false religion is built upon our need for the approval of other people. Paul said that's the whole thing driving this. That's the whole fuel that's turning the engine. Paul said it's all about your need to be approved of and to be thought well of. Paul is saying all of this is about your desire to hear somebody cheering your name. And sometimes it's easy for religious people like us to fall into the same trap, isn't it? Because surely if God's people are cheering for us, telling us we're doing a good job, that must mean God's cheering for us. It must mean that God is celebrating and God is waving His pom-poms in heaven and pushing us forward. But see what Paul's getting at here. He's saying that if you are an adopted son of God, then why do you need the approval of other people? Why do you need the approval of people good, bad, or indifferent? Why does it matter? Because you've got the approval of the one that matters most. And now Paul wants to illustrate just how loved and welcomed the Galatians were as he gives the last image in the last part of the verse, in last chapter, verses 21 through 31. He's given us an image of fatherhood. He's given us an image of motherhood. As he says, I'm like a mother wanting to give birth until Christ is formed in you. But he finishes in verse 21 by giving us an image of childhood. Image of childhood. The Apostle Paul says something pretty cool in verse number 21. He says, tell me, you desire to be under the law? He said, do you not listen to the law? He says, you think you know the Old Testament and want to live under the Old Testament? He said, you've missed the point of the Old Testament. The problem with the Judaizers was not that they understood the Old Testament, but that they didn't understand it. Paul said, let me show you how much you don't understand it. And he begins to tell this really scandalous story that comes from Genesis chapter 16. And he makes this incredible point and builds this allegory on top of it, which is my favorite part of the book of Galatians. This is it, my favorite part of the whole book. And I hope maybe in some way I can do a little bit justice so you will fall in love with it the way that I do. So it begins in Genesis 16. It is written, Abraham had two sons. Now, to understand what's going on in Genesis 16, you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham as an old man and says, Abraham, I love you, I choose you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and I'm going to so bless you that all of the nations in the world will be blessed through you. And Abraham says, okay. Which is pretty much what faith is. It's saying okay to the impossible when God tells you the impossible. But Abraham has no children, and he and his wife Sarah are old. And I'm not being hateful or ugly when I say that, but I mean they are old. I'm talking about bingo every Thursday morning, supper at 3.30, life alert around their neck. They are old. They are not having any more children. There's not going to have any more children. And so they set out following the Lord, knowing that God has made this promise. That, God, that He will make them a great nation. And year after year, they have no babies. Because they're old. Then finally, in Genesis chapter 16, Abraham's wife Sarah comes to him and says, here's what we do. She says, it seems like I am the problem. Why don't you take my slave girl by the name of Hagar, 
Why don't you have an affair with her, get her pregnant, then when she has a son, we will take that son and raise him as our own. What they were trying to do is trying to like, reverse engineer and retrofit the promise of God. They're saying, we can force God to keep His promise, and here's how we'll do it. Okay? And Abraham agrees to it. Because men are stupid and disgusting and should never be allowed to think for themselves. But amazingly, amazingly, the girl gets pregnant and has the baby. And they name him Ishmael. Paul mentions him here in the text. And Ishmael grows up. And as he gets a little bit older, you can imagine that there's tension in the home. Because you've got Abraham, Abraham's wife, Abraham's baby mama, and then Abraham's baby. And when, here's some free pastoral marriage counseling for you, when somebody other than your wife is having your babies, you're going to have relationship problems. And Abraham has relationship problems. And finally, finally, Sarah herself gets pregnant in an impossible way and gives birth to Isaac, who was the promised son and who was the ancestor, of course, of the Lord Jesus. The conflict between those two children, Isaac and Ishmael, still continues today. The problem between Isaac and Ishmael is the reason that our government has a Department of Homeland Security. It is the reason that you have to put shampoo in Ziploc bags when you go to the airport. And yet Paul says it's this son, Isaac, who is the child of promise. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Because Paul goes even further in the weeds and he says, this is interpreted allegorically in verse 24. These women are two covenants. What, Paul? One's from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Hagar's Mount Sinai in Arabia. But Mount Sinai in Arabia somehow corresponds to present Jerusalem. What in the world is he talking about? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that Hagar and Ishmael, this scheme to have a baby under his own power, that represents what Abraham can do if he's left to himself. It represents what Abraham's flesh can produce, what his body can produce. Ishmael is what Abraham can do on his own. But Isaac is the result of the promise of God. Isaac is the result of God doing the impossible. Isaac is the result of God doing what God alone can do. Abraham says that Ishmael is a figure and a type and a representative of those people who are still trying to save themselves by keeping the Old Testament law. And he includes all of, at this point, the city of Jerusalem, all of Judaism in that. He said those people who think that they are Jews and are approving themselves before God by keeping the law, he said they are not even legitimate descendants of Abraham, they are descendants of Ishmael. How do you like that? Then he says, you Gentiles who are trusting God to do in you and for you what you cannot do for yourselves. He said, you are the true descendants of Isaac. He said, you are the true children of promise. You are the true citizens of a heavenly and a greater Jerusalem. Paul drops a bomb right in the playground in Galatia. And he says, those people, you think you're Jews? He said, you're not real Jews. You've got Abraham in your family tree, but you don't have his faith in your heart, and you do not belong. But he says to you, unwanted, unwelcomed, unloved Gentiles who have put your faith in Jesus. He says, God has done the impossible in you in exactly the same way God did the impossible in Sarah. And God has made you into His family. And Paul is so shook by this that in verse number 27, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse number 1, and says, this is exactly the kind of thing that God loves to do. Rejoice, O barren, who does not bear. 
Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul said, this is how God works in the world. God gives life when there is no capacity for life. God gives life in the middle of death. God is a God who saves and delivers and resurrects. God does the impossible. Now I can remember, this verse means a lot to me because I can remember what it was like when Amy and I were struggling with infertility. I know some of y'all are thinking, well, y'all got over that quick, but yeah. Um, and we did, we struggled, we tried for five years to get pregnant with Scylla before she got here. And during, some of you have struggled with infertility, you know what that's like. You, you wonder to yourself, why aren't we good enough to be parents? You wonder why even, why doesn't God do this for us? I mean, I would go to Walmart in the middle of the afternoon, and I would see somebody there with seven or eight kids, and, you know, Mom would be wearing her SpongeBob pajamas in the middle of the afternoon. I'm thinking, God let those folks reproduce. What's wrong with me? And I would just be honest, I would be tempted sometimes to kidnap one of her kids. Like, she's probably not going to miss them. You never, you never think... You never think that you're going to be tempted to, to kidnap, but here we are. But I had those struggles in my mind, and some of you who have been through infertility, you know what that's like. You wonder, why doesn't God do this for us? Why isn't God giving me the life that I want? Why am I not good enough? And many people had that same spiritual struggle throughout their life. God, why am I not good enough for you to bless? Why am I not good enough for you to welcome? Why am I not good enough for you to love? And Paul brings this verse into the lives of a church full of people who believe that way about themselves. And he says to these insecure, struggling believers, listen, God gives life where there is no life. He makes the barren rejoice over her children. He says God gives life when there is no capacity for life. This is how God saves, by doing what He alone can do. So that our acceptance before God does not depend on the things that we do, the way Abraham messed all this up with Hagar. But it depends on what God can do, the way God blessed Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Now Paul wraps this up. Verse number 30. By reminding us of the tension and the struggle in the home that occurred when Ishmael and Isaac started to grow up together. And eventually, Abraham had to take Hagar and Ishmael and put them out of his home because the tension between the mothers of his two children was so great that he couldn't handle it. And I think what Paul is doing here to the Galatians is he's saying, listen, you've got people in your church that are preaching a false gospel. You need to do to them what Abraham did to Hagar and Ishmael, you need to kick them jokers out of there. Now today, that problem doesn't necessarily compute to us here at Sharon Heights. Because there's no one here that I know of with any kind of platform that's actively promoting or preaching a false gospel. Thank God for that. But in our hearts, there still may be that tendency to hear the old lie of, God really doesn't love you because you're not that good. God really doesn't welcome you or forgive you or accept you because you don't deserve it. God doesn't want you because you have nothing to offer Him. I think we should draw from this the understanding that we should fight that with everything in us. We should fight it with the truth of the gospel. We rejoice that the gospel and Jesus welcome us when we have nothing to offer. That God is the one who pursues us. 
that when we come to Jesus, we are loved and welcomed and accepted as He is. Paul says, you are sons or you are daughters. That's how God wants you to think about your relationship to Him. Not as slaves. Your value before God. Listen, if you have put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, your value in the eyes of God will never, ever go down. And it could never go up because He's already given everything for you. Wouldn't it be better today to get away from the guilt and the shame and the fear and to know God as a son or a daughter, whatever the case might be, and to say, God, you love me and I want to live from that place of confidence. We're going to stand together today and our musicians are coming to play our hymn of invitation. And I just want to ask you this question. While they prepare to lead us in a song, and that is this. Do you enjoy God? Many of us have been taught to obey Him, and we should. We've been taught to serve Him, and we ought to do that. We've been taught to worship Him, even though we may not always understand what that means or what it feels like. Do you enjoy Him? Do you enjoy Him the way a son can enjoy a relationship with a father whom he knows loves him unconditionally. That's what Paul's getting at in this passage. God is not looking for slaves who just mindlessly follow rules so that they will be accepted. God is making sons who love and are loved. And I hope you understand today you can have that kind of relationship with the Lord. Some of you do. Technically, objectively, you have put your faith in Jesus. But you don't feel it. You don't feel love. You don't feel welcome. Because you are like the church of Galatia. You're still believing those same old lies. That maybe, maybe you're not good enough. Maybe you're, not, maybe you're really not welcome. It'd be a good day for you to come and say, Lord, let the truth of the gospel speak louder than all those lies. Change my heart. We're going to sing that today. Change my heart, God. Make it ever true. Let me believe the truth. Let me know the truth. If you need to come today, this altar is open.